Greetings and welcome to the Exam Room Podcast brought to you by the Physicians Committee. I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thanks for giving us a listen. Thank you for giving us a download. Greatly, greatly appreciate it. Heart Healthy Diets this week, all about how plant-based foods can prevent heart disease. I'm going to be speaking with two of the leading cardiologists in the country, both of them on the forefront of the benefits of plant-based dieting. I'll be chatting with Dr. Kim Williams. He is the former president of the American College of Cardiology, as well as Dr. Andrew Freeman, who is the founder and co-chair of the American College of Cardiology's Nutrition and Lifestyle Work Group. Both doctors, their careers devoted to heart health, have switched to a plant-based diet after researching it and witnessing firsthand the effect that it can have on cardiovascular function. For Dr. Freeman, check this out. For Dr. Freeman, it even led to a rebate on his life insurance premium. Think about that. Let that, seriously, let that marinate for a second. A rebate on life insurance. Who in the world ever heard of an insurance company sending a rebate check? But it happened to Dr. Freeman after he adopted that plant-based diet. So you're going to hear about that and how their methods are dramatically improving patient outcomes as well as their quality of life. We're talking about weight loss and reversing obesity and in many cases, also reversing heart disease itself. I had the opportunity to speak with them at the International Conference on Nutrition and Medicine, and their stories are touching. I was especially awestruck by Dr. Williams' message. Very powerful. He said, do not let a culture hold your heart hostage. In other words, no matter what your circumstances are, there are always healthier options available. This is the Exam Room Podcast brought to you by the Physicians Committee. The weight loss champion Chuck Carroll here with you on location, ICNM 2018 edition. One of the biggest names, the biggest presenters that we have here this year is now on the podcast. And I'm just thrilled to death to have Dr. Kim Williams with us. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Now, you have quite the resume, my friend. I need to put on my glasses here to go over everything that uh, you are. I have the chief of the Division of Cardiology and the James B. Herrick Endowed Professor of Medicine and Cardiology at Rush University Medical Center. True? That is true. You are also the former president of the American Society of Nuclear Cardiology. Very true. All right. The former chairman of the Association of Black Cardiologists. Uh, Indeed. And the former president of the American College of Cardiology. Truly an honor. What does your business card look like, Dr. Williams? <laughs> I mean, it's got to be ridiculously long. It's a, well, it's a tiny font. <laughs> <laughs> Man, we're going to have some fun. So you have a background in cardiology. And one of the things that I've learned doing this podcast over the last year is the link between diet and chronic heart disease is so much stronger than so many people know. What is your particular story as far as diet and the heart and learning about plant-based nutrition? Well, you're actually, if I can digress for just a moment, Back it up. I'm not sure that what you said was actually true. Uh, and I've actually been taking advantage of that in my, cl- in my clinic and when I'm in the coronary care unit recently. 
So it's like this. A patient comes in, they've had a heart attack. Mm -hmm. They typically, we do a door-to-balloon time less than 90 minutes. They are having a good outcome. They've got a stent in their artery, and they're staying overnight, and you're talking with them the next, the next morning. What we do that many physicians do not do is just start with the patient and say, hey, what do you think happened to you? said, uh, I had a heart attack. Uh, and how did you have that heart attack? Mm, well, I think one of my arteries got blocked. Um, and so, yeah, that's true. What did it get blocked with? And they say, um, cholesterol and fat? I say, yeah, that's right. And how did that get there? And they scratch their head for a half a second, and then they say, I ate it. So I'm not sure that the American population does not know better. Ah. I think there is, like the people who smoke, which I don't, so I don't understand it, there's this feeling of immortality. Yes, my mother and my uncle got lung cancer as a smoker, but it's not going to happen to me. Right. I don't know what that is. I'm right. sure there are behavioralists who actually do understand it. It's hard for me to understand. And similarly, it's hard for me as a cardiologist, knowing that I've had friends in cardiology who have died of heart disease, who have had stents, uh, you know, and very famously, uh, the president of the American Heart Association had a heart attack on the podium at the last American Heart Association meeting. Well, what is that? Uh, and I, I almost admittedly get a little jealous that people can just do whatever they want thinking that there's no consequences because I can't think that way. Right. I'm, putting the two, I'm putting this logical string together and realizing that my behavior is going to affect my outcome. Um, so anyway, I think most Americans who have a heart attack know exactly why they had it. And if you, if you get them to put the dots together, they can actually do something about it. I like the way that you just said that you help put the dots together for them. I would imagine that that's so much more effective in getting that message in there than saying, no, you were wrong to eat the hot dog. You were wrong to eat the pizza, the hamburger, blah, 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 blah. And they're right. like, whoa, time out there. That's doc. right. But if you baby step them through there, a lot more receptive. Oh, it's very true. So at Rush, I like to talk about our patient population, which is so diverse. We're taking care of CEOs of Fortune 500 companies and you know, multi-billionaires. And then we've got a bunch of people who are from the inner city. And if they're more from the west side, there are a lot of Hispanics. If they're more from the south side, they're more African Americans. Uh, if they're more north, there might be the Greek population, um, the Serbian population, Polish population. And everyone has their own culture and their own uh, style. And when you ask people to change their diet, to give up the things they love, whether, whether it's hero sandwiches or black-eyed peas with cornbread with ham hocks in it, that is part of their culture. And so it may sound funny to us uh, who aren't part of that culture, but when you're attacking someone's food pattern, you're attacking their family their community, a lot of times their church, mm -hmm. and we have to be sensitive to that. We have to actually recognize that. And so that's why I think this sort of string of events where people put it together themselves, it uh, puts their own mind as sort of an investment into that process, and then they can get, make an intelligent decision on whether or not they're going to continue to do that yeah. uh, and end up on our table again or someone else's table, uh, or if they're going to try to do better for themselves. You said black eyed peas and ham hock. I got to ask, where are you from originally? Oh, I Outside of Chicago. Yeah, okay. Yeah, exactly. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, I, so w when, 
did you first, like, what was your inspiration then to get into cardiology? Was there something in your family or was it just something that you were always interested in? So it's interesting that I was stimulated to go into medicine because of my experience in the inner city, uh, growing up poor. I, and I probably don't want to say this in front of everybody. Yeah, I'll go ahead and say it. So, but I came from a, a home that was, uh, was had limited resources, let's sure. say, and someone I won't say who was had promised to give me a coat for winter. Birthday is in November. It's getting a little cold. I'm mm-hmm. walking to school without a coat. I end up with pneumonia in December. And during that hospitalization, and I won't say on the air which hospital it was because it's still there. Um, the notice how difficult the care was for inner city kids. And uh, when I realized that my pneumonia penicillin wasn't coming on time, I would go to the nursing station. And then I started getting the meds for my roommate whose meds weren't coming on time. And I just got involved and tried to fix it. And I, I decided right then as a 12-year-old that I was going to become a physician and work in pediatrics on the south side of Chicago. And so that became my focus. I went to college. I went to University of Chicago Medical School on the south side of Chicago. And I was going to fix this. And I'm so happy that my first uh, uh, clinical rotation as a third-year student was pediatrics. And then I found out one thing. I don't like sick children. <laughs> sick, <laughs> sick children are dep- it's depressing. I have so much respect for the pediatricians who can actually do that day in and day out and not have it take a piece of them. Yeah. Uh, but it did take a piece of me. So anyway, the other, as I was making that realization, I also realized that throughout my medical school, there was cardiac physiology, there was physical diagnosis, I could hear the murmurs that other students couldn't hear, I could read an EKG as if I had done it before. It was something very natural about cardiology. And so, you know, one principle that everyone in leadership always tries to get to the younger people is do something that you love, because that way you can actually work without working. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, I went into cardiology because that's where just all my proclivities were. Um, so that's a very strange way that I ended up uh, as a cardiovascular specialist. So as we mentioned, uh, the link between heart disease and, and nutrition is super, super powerful. I want to go back to those conversations that you have with patients. You, mm-hmm. you make a very good point that people know more than, than we realize. So, you know, That's right. guilty as charged for even saying that. <laughs> um, but I don't think that a lot of people realize then what a plant-based diet can do right. for their health. I don't think that a lot of people realize that if they have heart disease, that they can dramatically improve their health, or in some cases, even fully reverse heart disease by changing up their diet. Uh, talk to me a little bit about when you learned about that. Was there like an epiphany or angels singing on high, or like how, how did that work out for well, you? Well, it's actually a relatively famous story now. I, I, uh, my, I talked about how I went into cardiology, but I didn't mention how I went to nuclear cardiology. And, um, but the fact of the matter is I always liked physics, and the best amount of physics that you can get in cardiology is ionizing radiation. So, mm-hmm. of course, I do cardiac CT and, and nuclear cardiology. And as I was running my nuclear lab, uh, you know, putting out high-quality images, there was a patient when I was reading one day who had had horrific um, blood flow abnormalities on a nuclear scan about 18 months earlier. And she's back in the lab today, and I'm looking at the scan, and it's a whole lot better. And so I'm used to seeing that. It's typically after bypass surgery or after stenting. And my worksheet didn't give me the date that I could put in my report of when the revascularization had taken place. So I asked the staff, and they said, no, she said she didn't have anything done. 
So I called her on the phone. I said, I'm sorry, my lab has missed something. I'd just like to get, when was your revascularization date? She said, what revascularization? I said, you, your scan, uh, you know, your doctor will tell you the details, but it's a whole lot better. And so I assume that you had something done. He says, no, I, they told me I needed an angiogram, and I refused. Because I looked up online, and I saw Dean Ornish's program, and I started doing it. And between the meditation and the exercise and the diet with no more animal products, uh, my chest pain went away in about six weeks, and I was, I'd lost a lot of weight, and I was dropping all my medications, and I was exercising, and I was training for a marathon, but I stepped off the curb, and I broke my ankle, and that's why I'm back in the nuclear lab, because they said that I couldn't go to the operating room because my scan was so bad, and I knew it wouldn't be so bad. Uh-huh. And she was right. And so that made me pull out all the literature on the Dean Ornish diet. Mm-hmm. And he had had several publications, a lot of them in nuclear cardiology, showing dramatic improvements in blood flow uh, when you just change your diet. It's two things at once. It improves the function of the blood vessels, so there's more blood flow delivery, even before there's any change in the amount of plaque. But it also does plaque regression. Wow. And so you put those two together, and people are immediately at a lower risk than they were before they started. So you, you see this one patient, and then at what point then do you start kind of prescribing this or at least introducing it to your own? It's so funny that uh, what basically happened is uh, sort of on the personal side, I had a kid who was nationally ranked tennis player. I was the teaching pro. I was his coach. And um, he aged out of playing junior national tournaments, and I was no longer playing tennis twice a day every day. Mm-hmm. We would take off Monday if he won the tournament the previous weekend. Okay. okay? And all of a sudden, my own LDL cholesterol with a, just a bit less exercise and a little more aging had actually, was actually taking off on my chicken and fish American Heart Association heart-healthy diet. And so that recognition clicked in with the Ornish diet, with what I had seen, and I immediately adopted it. And within six weeks, my LDL cholesterol was under control, uh, and I'm just about a 50% reduction, which is what, you, what happens when you go from a high cholesterol diet to a no cholesterol diet, typically 40, 50, 60% reduction. And so that really uh, helped me. And then I started, I always thought that that was when I started um, uh, actually really prescribing it. Um, but then I realized uh, after seeing some, some patients who I'd been following for 20 years or so uh, and seeing uh, the fact that it was really right after that patient, before I adopted it, mm-hmm. I had started prescribing it. Um, so I, they had made a believer out of me before I uh, applied it to my own situation. That's awesome. Um, talk to me, like, can you think of like one particular success story beyond mm-hmm. just the, the first woman that you mm-hmm. know, you're like, oh my goodness. Can you think of when you first prescribed it for somebody or something like that when you're like, wow, these results are just unbelievable? Well, I, you know, I would just use myself. I mean, so what is the, if you look at the cholesterol trialist data, yeah, for every uh, 37 uh, point reduction in your LDL cholesterol, you will reduce your cardiac event rate by 22%. Hmm. So... I don't know that I would be sitting here talking to you with an LDL of 170. Sure. Let's see. A male, don't have that double X chromosome thing going, okay, to protect me. Right. Uh, African American, okay, uh, over 60, I, was, I would probably not be here. And so uh, I would say that, you know, the, the saves sometimes are the ones that you don't find out what would have happened because, you know, you put somebody on a completely different health trajectory uh, with their diet. But, yes, I do see it all the time. Um, I, see, I mean, and these stories, you, you give me the, 
the, you know, the, the healthcare scenario, and I can tell you uh, the patient who ended up in the emergency room because he was still taking insulin when he wasn't a diabetic anymore because he had gone vegan, uh, the patient who felt lousy because and was just feeling weak and tired and went to his internist after he went vegan, well, it's because his blood pressure was 85 over 50. Why is and so the, what would the internist say? Said you have to eat meat so you can take your drugs again. Said, what is that? Okay, he was taking drugs for a disease he didn't have anymore. High mm. blood pressure is dramatically improved in many people, moderately improved, slightly improved in other people, but it's pretty much going to get better. And right. you have to watch those blood pressures because you know you may end up with uh, some really low blood sugars, some really low blood pressures if you're not working with your doctor to back off of the drugs. Uh, for diseases that are completely unnecessary. Do you view this as the future of cardiology? I, I really do. Um, I'm really um, encouraged by the fact that American College of Cardiology has a focus on nutrition, that there are major medical centers uh, such as Rush University with our real proclivity to have prevention as an everyday thing. This isn't just something that we do on the side. Uh, yeah, we do call it the cardio nutrition clinic, but everybody's into it. Everybody knows it. Not everybody does it. We only have 21 uh, <laughs> vegan vegetarian cardiologists right. right now, but that's growing every time. And I suspect that it's going to continue to grow because people realize the kind of impact that it can have on their own health, their family, their community, and ultimately the, the country. So I'm always saying that it is everyone's patriotic duty to be a vegan. Okay. <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't heard that one yet. The patriotic duty. Um, well, just consider me a patriot then. There you I, I want to end by asking you specifically about the African-American community. Yeah. You, you touched on that. Mm-hmm. Um, face an uphill battle already with, when it comes to heart-related issues and diabetes, correct? Yes and no. And okay. so we always thought there were some things that were different about the African-American community. You've heard about the proclivity to have hypertension. Right. And this theory, I don't know how well the theory can be substantiated. Uh, there are more people who are expert than me on this. The idea that people were forced to come to the United States in slave boats. Um, horrible conditions, a lot of dehydration, a lot of people dying there. And who is it that survived? The people who survived were people who were able to conserve volume by conserving sodium. So we're all descended from people who are sodium sensitive. That's a decent theory. Probably fits with some of the data. The more salt you eat, the higher your blood pressure uh, in, uh, in African Americans in general, not everyone, uh, because we are a mix of all different kinds of everything. Sure. Um, but if you, take, if, you, if you were to say, well, how about the diabetes part? No, there would be Pima Indians and Mexican origin people. They have much more proclivity to diabetes than African Americans. So why do we have it? It's because type 2 diabetes is very common when you have central obesity. So it's actually obesity and nutrition that's the problem, not so much the, the, uh, the genetics. And so if we actually focus on the diet, we can get rid of the risk factors. Um, this was actually something that's been published by the Adventist Health Studies that they've looked at the African-American population, and they do extremely well with plant-based nutrition. So if we wanted to eradicate the difficulty that we're having with the increased health care costs and the, the early death and that 11-year gap in, uh, in decreasing cardiovascular mortality that was published by the CDC a few weeks ago, all we need to do is improve the diet. I want to talk to you a little bit about food deserts and, and where it's hard to get high quality nutrient dense food and 
I think a lot of that may be tied to the subsidies that are given to these unhealthy food companies. And you see that type of food in abundance in impoverished areas. And I know that that's, that's a passion of yours. So, I, yeah, I really think it's more the latter. that The food desert has been out there. Brian Smedley talked about it. He was from Detroit. Uh, he put together a, a, a good book on it when he was working for the, the uh, CDC. And the fact of the matter is most of these food deserts have actually, you know, we had Whole Foods when I lived in Detroit Mm -hmm. as uh, chief at Wayne State. I lived downtown. I had to go to the local grocery store that had incredibly high prices and unhealthy food, or I just drive to the suburbs if I had time. Well, you know, uh, know, we had a big food chain. I won't say which one for, you know, commercial reasons, but one of those good, healthy food chains moved right into that community. And they had a tremendous business. Uh, They had a reputation for high prices. They made sure that the prices were reasonable. That's really, really a, a, a model for the future. But who was going to make the cultural change so that the things that are bought by the, the patients in the inner city are different? Um, yeah, you can actually do a lot with pricing. And so what you mentioned about the subsidies is really true. If we can actually put a higher price on sugar-sweetened beverage or any kind of sweetened beverage um, and refined foods and snack foods, you will actually see a decrease in consumption. There are actually randomized trials that show that in a prospective fashion. And so it probably applies to everyone, not just the African-American community, but the poor people tend to eat the things that are least expensive and yet are filling and satisfying, and that tends to be the relatively unhealthy stuff. If we change the culture, change the culture completely by getting people to eat more whole food plant-based, it's actually less expensive. You can get large bags of beans that, that are very inexpensive, oh, buy sure. things in bulk. Uh, it's just a matter of being able to you know, love that and love the effects of it, and that really is a cultural change. You know, we did a show a few months back called Being Vegan on a Budget, and we took one of our nutritionists from the Barnard Medical Center uh, down to the grocery store. She was able to fill up a cart, a full cart of groceries for a week for two people, and it was about $40. (laughs) Isn't that something? That is fantastic. Um, Can you publish that one? Oh, oh, it's up. Oh, fantastic. Just head over to iTunes or Spotify. Look for The Exam Room brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Plug, plug. Uh, And then search (laughs) out the Vegan on a Budget uh, Vegan on a Budget. Thank you. Um, I want to end by asking you about the healthcare system in general. You obviously work in the healthcare industry. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of people in this country that say, hey, we need significant changes. So I'm, I'm just curious about your feelings. So one of the benefits of having been in the positions that I've been in is that at one point, uh, 2005, I was recommended to be a cardiology representative to Medicare for the HOPS, the Hospital Outpatient Prospective Payment System. It took me four years to be able to say that out uh, really fast. Um, and the APC panel, or Ambulatory Payment Classification Panel, gives advice to Medicare <clears throat> about their next set of um, payment guidelines. Well, interestingly enough, I, you know, there were some details, and yeah, I was able to get them to not cut the price of PET scanning and all this, all this stuff. That, there was work to be done, but I actually, believe it or not, just sat there in awe. Everybody thinks Medicare is some horrific. No, these are people who are completely dedicated to the health of this nation and to take a finite budget and spread it over a decaying health system, okay, where people are doing all the things that they shouldn't do 
increasing the cost of, of health care. And nobody's giving them a break by saying, I'm going to be a vegan. I'm going to exercise every day. I'm never going to smoke. I'm going to watch my weight, watch my cholesterol, watch my blood pressure, and know that my blood sugar is normal. I mean, that quickly was the Heart, American Heart Association Life Simple 7. If we get everyone to do that, Medicare would have an easier time administering, um, being able to give expensive therapies to people who need it. And this is, this is what we cannot do right now. Now, the other thing that I would applaud Medicare on is their attempt to try to move us away from volume-based purchasing to value-based purchasing. Let's pay for quality. Let's pay for outcomes. Let's say, you know, we really do want health care, mm-hmm. not sick care. And so I'm going to give you, you know, a smaller payment than usual to take care of these patients post after they have a heart attack. Okay, we're going to give you 75 or 80 percent of the usual fee. But then if you get them to do the cardiac rehab program, okay, and you get them to do uh, plant based nutrition and and maintain their medications adherence, you're going to have such good outcomes that 75 or 80 percent is way more than you're spending. And you'll be making a bundle and we'll be saving money. That's the kind of prospective cognitive approaches uh, that we need. We need to incentivize health uh, and pay for that, not just paying for events that happen um, and trying to get p- dig, dig people out of a river that they shouldn't have fallen in in the first place. Pick one. Nadal, Djokovic, or Federer? Who are you taking? So now, you're ta- now we're in the middle of the American hardcourt season or the North American hardcourt right. season because they're in Toronto. Um, I would say the hottest person on the American hardcourt right now is probably Kevin Anderson. Okay. Yeah. Was he the one that was in that epic semifinal? He um, was. Okay. And so he would have done a, a really much better job in that final if he hadn't played for so many hours against oh, yeah. John Isner. And so, you know, he's, he's, he's got his game going. University of Illinois product uh, through, through South Africa. Uh, of course. Um, Illinois. But, uh, yeah, yeah, Says the man from Chicago. Absolutely. But, you know, it's, it's an interesting time. Um, we like, on the women's side, we like to see Serena come back and, and be strong again. But, um, you know, the, the person who, believe it or not, is playing extremely well on that side is Maria Sharapova. If you see her, uh, don't be surprised if she comes off real strong at, uh, at the end of the American hardcore season. Well, Sloane Stevens, she seems to be the next American woman to kind of take a step forward. Well, you know, she's kind of a, uh, a, a Chicago product in that her coach, uh, Kamal Murray, he was actually one of the little kids when I was teaching in one of those uh, junior development programs, and now he's a really great coach, um, and he's taken her to the next level. Um, but I, I never can tell what Sloane is going to do. I don't think there's any limit to her game, but sometimes she'll lose to people that you don't expect. And so I would think um, if she can cure that, if you're a good player, I'm going to beat you badly. And if you're a bad player, I'm not sure what's going to happen. If The moment she cures that, I think she'll be number one in the world. There you go. This has been Health and Heart Courts with Dr. Kim Williams. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a lot of fun. Absolutely. Absolutely. My pleasure. Here at the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee at the ICNM Conference, beautiful downtown Washington, D.C. I'm joined by a man who has credentials for days, and so I'm going to let you talk a little bit about those credentials, but I will say that you are Dr. Andrew Freeman, and you are amazing. Well, thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. You specialize in cardiology, correct? Yeah, so I'm a traditional, uh, went to medical school, cardiology trained, uh, cardiovascular disease fellowship trained uh, cardiologist, Mm -hmm. and I practice in Denver. 
Now, this is the Physicians Committee Conference here, so talk to me about your involvement here. I know that you've worked a little bit with Neil in the past, Dr. Barnard, I should say. Yeah, so um, Dr. Barnard and I have worked together probably for the last three to four years at this point, but um, when I finally went plant-based after just literally pulling the trigger about six years ago, you know, I sort of came out of fellowship and for the first few years, like everybody else, threw pills at everybody's problems, and you know, some people got better, but most people not really or minimally. And then when I finally read my last book, uh, we had literally been up in the mountains and I ate uh, some awful meat-based entree and the next day I was vegan and I've never looked back. <laughs> um, and I would tell you that uh, not only personally did it transform me, you know, I had trained in Philadelphia, so I was eating cheesesteaks and awful things like that. I dropped about 35 pounds, uh, but my energy level skyrocketed. I run 10 to 12 miles a week, all these great things. I even redid my own life insurance physical, and they sent me a rebate check in the mail, which was pretty neat. Outstanding. But the thing that was most transformative was when I started to do this with my patients. And for the first time in my career, I saw Cure. So at the meantime, uh, when I was in Philadelphia, my um, cardiology chair was president of the American College of Cardiology. So very was very eager to get people like me involved in the college. So from the beginning of my training all the way through now, I've been active in the American College of Cardiology. And when I finally had this sort of epiphany that, gosh, I got to change the way I put my body into its environment every day. And when I started doing it with patients, I went to the college to look for like-minded peers and found that I didn't know where they were. Right. So knowing the college pretty well, I said, you know, let's see if we can start a nutrition and lifestyle work group. And we housed ourselves in the prevention section where we are today. And the work group started out with maybe 10 or 12 people, including Kim Williams and Neil Barnard. But also for balance purposes, we got other people who were active in nutrition that may not have necessarily been plant-based. And now we have over 40 members, and I would say more than half of them are plant-based, and they're all names that you recognize, including Esselstyn and Ostfeld and Williams and Barnard, all these folks, and Dean Ornish himself as well. Um, and we have now started to make the college aware that its choices that it's providing to its member cardiologists are important. And we've actually published a couple of papers now kind of highlighting some of these nutritional controversies. And we actually have had lots of little successes. For instance, in the 2015 U.S. Dietary Guidelines for Americans, we were successful in getting them to say that you should consume as little cholesterol as possible. And we take a lot of credit for that in our work group. And Kim Williams and a number of our other folks, including Neil Barnard, who is an amazing physician, person, compassionate human being, and a politician at the same time, really knows how to get things done in Washington. So we've done some amazing things together, and I'm really, really excited to be here. Now, I, I want to go back to you introducing this concept to your patients. I always like to ask this when I have physicians in, how receptive are they to the idea of kind of ditching the meds in favor of dietary intervention? So it depends. So when I first started doing this, and I should say for full disclosure, since I live in Denver, I'm actually from New York. So I'm a very bottom line, let's get it done kind of guy. I'm in. Uh, however, that doesn't fly very well in most of the country where, you know, if someone behaves badly and you say, hey, stop it, they don't like that. But if you pull them aside and say, hey, what's going on? So I learned how to fluff it up. But when I first started, I would say to my patients, you know, look, you just had your second bypass surgery and you're eating bacon and eggs. You can't do that anymore. Mm -hmm. And they would go right out to the patient advocate and say, you know, I need a new cardiologist. So now I say to the patient, and this I give all the credit in the world to my wife who gave me this advice. She said, why don't you ask if you can be critical of their diet before you're critical of their diet? So that actually was incredibly smart, and it, it surprisingly didn't come to me at all before she said that because I didn't think of it as criticism. I thought of it as compassion, but right. it is criticism. And so, so I say to the patients now, 
Um, I want to talk to you about four different things that you can do every day that will have a major impact on your life and perhaps can get you off your medications, but it's going to require an enormous amount of change. So let's start, and I usually start with exercise, which is considered less controversial. Right. Once we get through that, I say, well, what did you have for dinner? And they say, oh, I had my, you know, double-decker, yada, yada, uh, badness. Of course. And then I say, okay, great. And then I'm going to be critical of your diet if that's okay with you. Would that be all right? And they usually say, yes, 99% of the time. So for the very, very few that say, no, I don't say anything. And then I'll have a conversation, and I talk to them about how these days every doctor who sees them is very well-meaning, very well-trained. They want them to be better, and they throw pills at them. And as I've said to every one of my patients, every pill that we use is a poison with a beneficial side effect. So if we can get less poison in and more benefit out, that's the goal. But what if we can do it without the side effects at all? And I think these days people come to me, they're on 10, they're on 12, they're on 20 medications. They want to feel better. I work at, you know, the nation's number one respiratory hospital. So these people are sick. And a lot of them have been on chronic steroids. So they're massively obese, lots of them. Not all, but lots. And I think a lot of times when I've gotten people to be really well by what they do every day, <laughs> excuse me, they actually start to feel better and then I can take them off of medications, which is my favorite thing to do. And today, when I give my talk here at uh, the conference, I'm going to talk particularly about a guy who I took care of who had really severe heart failure, who got all the usual Western medicine, but I put him on this lifestyle program and literally he is cured. It wow. is amazing. So those are the kind of things that inspire me every day because, you know, anyone could throw pills at people. But to get people really better, to get a cure as opposed to control of disease is really powerful. Yeah, I, I want to talk about that. Is the dietary intervention, is it any more effective or even less effective depending on how long this person has had heart disease? So it depends, right? So a lot of these people don't have just heart disease. They have some respiratory disease. They have some heart disease. They're obese. Their lungs don't exchange gas because they're obese. They have diabetes. They have high cholesterol. So it's very hard to say if you fix one, it doesn't fix the others because I suspect it fixes them all. If you look at the common endpoint for virtually every disease, it's inflammation. And if we can get the inflammation down, many times the disease itself goes away. Right. right? And we transform dis-ease into ease, which is really what we're after. Um, and, and it's funny, the words that we use, um, like, for instance, hypertension, high blood pressure, means too much tension. A lot of these people are very stressed out. And many times they're stressed out because they're sick and they're not feeling better. Sure. So I think uh, if we're able to do this well, people leave where everything gets better. And sometimes it's pretty quick. I mean, if you think about the guy I'm going to present today, he came in with severe heart failure. And within six months had lost uh, a significant amount of weight. His heart function started to recover. And by a year, he was normal, like you or I, without any major health issues, which wow. is pretty amazing. And um, I, I would say that sometimes there's severe damage, right? If someone has a massive heart attack and a good chunk of that heart muscle is dead, I can't make that recover. Right. However, I can make the rest of the heart muscle compensate well enough that they can live life normally. Um, if someone has really bad, brittle diabetes for 30 years, sometimes I can't get the pancreas to function again properly, and they're on insulin, albeit a lot less insulin than they were when they first started. And then usually cholesterol, I can get better. Blood pressure, I can almost always get better. Quality of life almost always improves. Um, and I think the risk for heart attack or repeat event goes way down. Right. Uh, it never goes to zero. I wish it would be zero. But there are some people out there who have just super bad genes and super bad disease, and it's very hard to recover fully from that. But the vast majority of people, if you catch them soon enough, or you catch them before they clinically manifest disease, meaning they come to you and you say, Doc, everyone in my family died at 45. I'm 43. Can you help me? I can usually help those people significantly. And that's really what I'm after. 
You know, this one popped in my head this morning as I was coming over here. We hear a lot about heart disease and heart attacks, but I don't know if this would even be a factor. But what about somebody that has like arrhythmia and has had a couple of ablation surgeries? Sure. So actually, it's interesting you mentioned this. There's been a lot of literature in the last three to four years, five years, about obesity relations to atrial fibrillation, which is epidemic. And for the listeners out there who may not be familiar, atrial fibrillation is when the top part of the heart is beating chaotically. And it comes on from a variety of mechanisms, but obesity is a big trigger, and stress actually can be a big trigger. And it's interesting, the literal definition of atrial fibrillation uh, is this big, long phrase, but to break it down into layman's terms, it's literally chaos in the heart. So many times when I meet with these people, I'll talk to them about their stress level. They are chaos in their hearts. And they're like, oh, that makes sense. So stress can do it, but weight loss can also significantly reduce the incidence. Now, there are some people out there who also are uh, genetically programmed to have arrhythmias or more prone to arrhythmias. Those are a little less easier to fix, although they're easy to control with medication or lifestyle. Um, But I would say that in general, arrhythmia is usually a consequence of other things, obesity or uh, coronary disease or or things like that. Well, you've mentioned genetics a number of times. One of the things that we talk about a lot on this podcast is genetics aren't necessarily absolutes. So if you have those super bad genes, Mm -hmm. but you are, you know, actively participating in preventative medication as far as nutrition and things like that, that can significantly lower that risk. Absolutely. So the field we're talking about here mostly is really epigenetics, which is you may have a gene and it may make the protein, but does the protein that creates the disease fold the right way and operate the right way? And the answer to that question is probably not if it's not put in the milieu that would allow it to express itself. And so what I always tell people, genes don't have to hold you hostage unless you put them in the environment that lets them express themselves. So, you know, a lot of people out there have, for instance, the breast cancer genes, um, BRCA or BRCA, Mm -hmm. and those people are at very high risk for breast cancer. But does that mean that every single one of them should have a prophylactic mastectomy? And the answer to that question is, I don't think people know, but if we can put people in an environment where we know that it will reduce the incidence of breast cancer, for instance, there's been lots of links to dairy and other things like that, what will happen? And I don't think we know. But there have been a number of studies in the last several years, particularly with heart disease, that show that if you adopt very healthy lifestyles, you don't smoke, you exercise, you eat right, all the good things we're talking about, you're plant-based in particular, uh, that your genes don't necessarily have to express themselves and you could potentially reduce your heart attack risk significantly. My uh, colleague and friend, Dr. Esselstyn, would tell you that if you eat a super low-fat, no-oil, plant-based diet, he calls you heart attack-proof. And I would say that you are definitely heart attack proof if you think about it in the same concept as waterproof, which is it's not that water won't ever get in, but it's unlikely to get in. And the same thing with heart disease. I think when you're heart attack proof, it's very unlikely, but it's not zero. I guess just a couple more questions. I want to get specific. So in case somebody's listening and they have a family member who has this or has a family member with the arrhythmia, is there any food in particular that you would key in on, or is it just the general whole food plant-based diet? Well, it really depends on the arrhythmia, right? So if there are arrhythmias from the bottom of the heart, um, which are the more lethal arrhythmias, they commonly come from coronary disease. Mm -hmm. So eating a low-fat, plant-based, whole food, unprocessed diet um, will reduce the incidence of coronary disease and may help with that. Second is a lot of the foods that we eat are inflammatory, and inflammation can easily make the heart irritable, so I usually tell people to avoid those. If it's atrial fibrillation, weight loss is very helpful. 
Um, and then there's been a whole slew of studies over the years with separate antioxidants, some of which have shown benefit. But I always tell people that we know now that when we pull the antioxidant out of the fruit or vegetable, it doesn't seem to have the same effect. So what I tell people to do is eat a variety of brightly colored fruits and vegetables. That's nature's signal to us that these are good for us and they're beautiful. Same thing when you walk into a supermarket. Why is the produce section always the first thing you see right. rather than the meat section, which is red and gray and awful looking? So in short, I, I, I don't think there's a magic bullet. But what I would say is a whole food plant-based diet seems to cure the vast majority of disease, period. But it also has to be combined with exercise, stress relief, and connection and support. So those four things together are really the most powerful. So if somebody hits the quad, as you're talking about, how quickly, how rapidly do you think they'll start to experience some results? Uh, I would say that I've seen patients get better um, within two weeks. You know, and of course, these are subjective. It's hard to measure. But for angina in particular, which is chest pain from heart disease, usually within two to three weeks, people are like, I feel so much better. And a lot of my patients at a respiratory hospital have unbelievable amounts of mucus and coughing and all that. I've had patients come back in two weeks or send me a message on our portal, our patient portal. Hey, doc, I don't know what happened. I gave up all the dairy and animal products, and I'm not congested anymore. And again, why is that? We're getting rid of the inflammation, which is the body is trying to temper the inflammation with mucus production and coughing, trying to get rid of whatever the irritant is. And you know what I love most about that is everything that you're talking about. Some circles will say that it's controversial, but these are all like scientifically proven, come from peer-reviewed studies, and it's kind of irrefutable. Exactly. And that's the thing, right? So I call myself an evidence-based physician. And in order to be credible, particularly in the American College of Cardiology, you have to show your evidence. Now, people have criticized that some of these studies over the years have been small, but I would argue small and mighty. They're very powerful and powered appropriately, statistically speaking, to show results. And I would argue that some of uh, Dean Ornish's ama amazing work with the Lifestyle Heart Trial and others uh, before at the Leon Heart Study, uh, which actually I think came after it, uh, Predimed, uh, which was the Mediterranean diet, a largely plant-based diet, all of these have shown significant benefit, and I think the proof is in the pudding, as you put it. Now then, let's end with some fun. How did you get such a phenomenal Twitter handle, Heart Cure Doc? That is great. <laughs> uh, I actually trialed an error until I found one that wasn't uh, taken. So uh, that was, uh, I do some social media work for the American College of Cardiology and uh, wanted to have a handle that people would remember. Yeah, I'd say that that works. That's solid branding, man. Thank you. Yeah, I like that. Dr. Andrew Freeman here on the Exam Room Podcast. Man, you are just an absolute pleasure. Enjoy the rest of the conference. Definitely will. Thank you so much for having me. Well, if you're not all fired up yet to take care of your heart, I don't know what it's going to take. Many thanks to Dr. Kim Williams and Dr. Andrew Freeman. You guys are both heart-healthy rock stars. And you, my friend, you are a rock star for listening. Do me a favor, though. Go ahead and push pause right now after giving yourself a pat on the back. Subscribe to the show. Subscribe to the exam room by the Physicians Committee. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify, Stitcher, wherever it is that you get your podcast from. Go ahead and subscribe and leave us a five-star rating and deny nice comment if you would be so kind and also if you didn't know we're on youtube you can actually watch the show now we're up on the physicians committee channel an idea have a healthy break at work take some time watch the show download some information and i promise you we're not going to tell your boss
Lots of heart healthy tips on the website as well, pcrm.org slash heart health. This is where I get real giddy. Uh, not only are you going to learn some ways that you can really implement heart-healthy diets into your own life, there are also some really, really, I mean, just powerfully flavorful recipes on there. We're talking serious flavor explosions. Linguini with seared oyster mushrooms and... My personal favorite, red curry chickpea and sweet potato soup. You know, the seasons, they are a-changing, and that sweet potato soup, that's awfully tasty, warms you up on a cool evening. Thank you again, Drs. Kim Williams and Andrew Freeman. For Dr. Neil Barnard, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thanks for listening to The Exam Room, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. 